is February 3rd, 2022. I want to welcome you all to the live stream. I'm Aaron Schatz, the Editor-in-Chief of Football Outsiders. Normally, I am joined by Mike Tanier on uh, Thursdays, but Mike is down in Mobile covering the Senior Bowl for us. So instead, we've got Derek Klassen and Scott Spratt here to uh, take all your football questions. Thank you to everybody who's watching us on Twitch and on YouTube. You can ask us questions live during the chat. We also want to say hi to anybody watching us on Twitter or Facebook or listening afterwards on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network. We're here at 1 o'clock Eastern time. That's when we do these shows. Uh, Don't forget the Splash Play guys will be here at 2.30 today talking about next year's best ball drafts. So they're already getting a head start on fantasy for next year, but we're going to stick with this year. I'm going to start by asking you guys what your feelings are about the Super Bowl matchup. I mean, we're not doing our full on super preview until next Thursday, but you know, what are your sort of your initial thoughts about Cincinnati and the Rams? I mean, I feel like the Bengals, they're pretty fortunate to be here. I mean, they've executed on offense, but the teams they've played have really struggled. And I think it's been a lot more issues in their execution than it's necessarily been the Bengals with creative game planning or things along those lines. I mean, Tannehill just threw those three picks that really sabotaged the Titans. The Chiefs seems like they maybe had alternatives rather than banging their heads into the wall in the second half, you know, not throwing deeper, whatever the case may be. Uh, So I feel like it's going to be a problem for them dealing with a really good defensive line that's going to bring pressure. I feel like the Rams probably should be favored by more than they are. Yeah, I mean, I've been beating this drum for three months, but the offensive line has to kill them at some point. It's one it's probably the it's one of the worst that I can remember um, recently. um... And like the most recent one is what the Chiefs had to put up with against the Bucks, which to be fair was like a lot of backups. But we saw how that went. And Mahomes is, is even more talented than Burrow is, and that's not a big away from Burrow. He's been fantastic. But, like, it just feels like they have too much talent up front, and they still have enough in the back end that I think, you know, I think that that's something that the Chiefs didn't have. I think that that's something that the Titans didn't have. I mean, just Jalen Ramsey alone, I think, brings them a lot in the secondary that is going to help facilitate the pass rush being able to get home. Um, and then honestly, it sounds incredibly weird, but like Eric Weddle has played very, very well <laughs> since coming back. I don't know how, I don't like know what they gave him. I don't know what he's been doing in the two years that he's not been playing, but he's actually been really good for them, both in coverage and being like a late fitter in the run game. So I don't know. To me, it just feels like this is kind of where the buck stops for the Bengals. They've had an awesome run. They're clearly ahead of schedule. They have a lot of resources to be better next year, but it to me, it just feels like this is kind of where it ends. The ESPN, I looked up, you know, ESPN's pass block win rates for the Bengals line uh, writing my preview. uh, And, oh, my God, like the (laughs) guards and tackles are all in the 50s uh, at their positions. And the center, Trey Hopkins, is like 28th. I mean, their Uh, best guy is like Jonah Williams, and he's like fine at best. Jackson Carmen, right? So last week – they took out Adonage at right guard and put in Jackson Carmen, and then Carmen got destroyed. So Carmen doesn't have enough snaps to qualify for ESPN's rankings, but if he did, he would be in last place among guards. Well, I mean, he's a he was a second round rookie this season. Like, right. you know, the the team made the choice to not draft your Pinay Sewell or whoever they could have had in the first round that would have been a real impact lineman. And in retrospect, I don't think you would do anything differently. It's like, you know, the Bengals were starting from a place where they had a lot more holes than they could address in one offseason and with one draft. And it's great. I mean, they've gotten a lot further than you would think that that team would have gotten. It's like it's everything about it should be celebrated, but they just don't measure up to a team like the Rams that beyond even having the incredible top in talent, they're pretty good across the board, especially when guys like Weddle are able to, to be capable players. They just don't really have the same weaknesses that the Bengals do. Or Troy Reader. The fact that, Derek, that you tweeted that Troy Reader had a really good game against the 49ers, at least in run defense. I mean, he's like a mm-hmm. huge problem in pass defense, but if, right. he's, <laughs> if he's playing a role, then, then the Rams are really looking good. Like, I feel bad because I, I want to keep emphasizing the fact that, yes, upsets happen, and uh, no, this is not. This is definitely not the biggest mismatch in Super Bowl history compared to something like the Giants and the Patriots in 2007. 
And we've got the Bengals winning like a third of the time. And things that happen a third of the time happen oh, one out of three times. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But at the same time, I, I definitely feel like um, almost like I'm being gaslighted about the Bengals. Like they're just not that good. They're a, a nice little team that's probably DVOA probably has too low. But other advanced metrics had them at like 12th or 13th, right? Well, we had them 17th, and I think 12th, 13th is a little bit closer to where they were, and obviously they've been better in recent weeks. But all their playoff wins have been one-score wins, and the offense hasn't really played that well. It's the defense that's played surprisingly well. But then the pass rush, we keep hearing about what a great pass rush they have. Uh, I looked up the ESPN pass rush win rate. They are actually lower in the playoffs than they were in the regular season. A lot of these sacks they've had have been coverage sacks. Like a lot of those Mahomes sacks were, you know, dropping eight into coverage and nobody was open and Mahomes just – I mean, I don't know what was up with Mahomes in that game. But Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that I've – I've been, I mean, I've, I've been trying to dig this up, basically, like what happened to the Chiefs in the second half? The most compelling argument that I've seen isn't just that they dropped eight in the coverage. It's that their linebacker, Logan Wilson, would like engage with the guard to like pretend to be part of the pass rush, but then drop back to spy. So like that's perhaps what kind of cut off Mahomes being the one that could then scramble. Because like the thing that makes Mahomes impossible beyond the fact that he can just get the ball wherever he wants it on a dime, right, is that he's also super athletic and can run for big games, which he did the week before in the playoffs too, right? So like it, it takes away every angle you would normally have, but like by fainting, so to speak, maybe the Bengals kind of tricked Mahomes into like taking away the outlet that would make the, the easiest, most sense for the, the coverage looks that he was getting. And it was tough, but like, obviously the chiefs had the best offense in my mind, but like the Rams, I don't even know what the, the strategic approach might be like to like, what would you do to, to even go at it? Cause I feel like they're, they're a little bit more, I don't know, broadly successful that like, they're not as single-minded necessarily. So like, I feel like they're going to be more adaptable to a game plan and it's going to make it really hard for a team that's, that's not as good to, to match up. I think to me, a lot of it comes down to like, the Rams can kind of attack the core of your defense a lot better than I think the Chiefs can. Um, like, I mean, Travis Kelsey's great, but like what the Rams can do in terms of mixing and matching Cooper Cup as a blocker, going over the middle, all that sort of stuff, on top of OBJ just being fantastic as a one-on-one -on -one outside guy. Like, and that's the thing with the Chiefs, like Tyreek Hill is awesome. Travis Kelsey's awesome. But like OBJ to me is kind of like a different level as a pure one-on-one -on -one receiver and I think we've seen that especially over the last right towards the tail end of the season and, and through the playoffs and so to me I don't really think the Bengals have a guy who can match up with that I, I think they played really well this past week but it just feels like they've been overperforming. and I think when they when they match up against a guy like Odell Beckham I think it's just I don't know I have a very hard time believing that they're going to be able to cover him for four quarters yeah, maybe maybe he's a very different receiver than Hill. It's not that he's right. better than Hill. It's just it's, such it's a just way different style. Mm -hmm. And maybe they put a Wouzier on Cup and feel like they can slow Cup down because a Wouzier was so good this year. But then, yeah, who who do you put on Beckham? I mean, um, I can't remember the name of the other outside corner. Eli Apple. Hilton's the slot guy. Eli so Apple's the other one. Yeah. Oh, Eli Apple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Beckham's going to destroy him. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to be like if if the Bengals really over dedicated to, to pass coverage, then I feel like the Rams would happily take those carries that are all 75 percent success rate carries. Right. Like they're mm -hmm. not going to be stubborn with the passing game in the same way that it seemed like the Chiefs were being last week. No, okay. although I wonder if they go back to more Michelle, because I mean, one thing that we've definitely seen these first three weeks is it's a really nice human interest story that Akers came back from the Achilles. And he's useful as a receiver in a way Michelle is not. But his running has been bad. And I'm not just talking about the fumbles. I mean, the runs have just – he's just not fully all the way back. And well, I have, I, have, I have a bit of a mixed mind about this because, like, if you look at the full season, regular and postseason combined, minimum 50 carry type of deal, he is by far and away the, the lowest yards before contact per attempt. And, like, that's often something that I would put on on the blockers or maybe in this case in I particular see. against the Bucks against – like his matchups have been against teams with really good defensive lines, really good run stopping games. And so I feel like, honestly, I feel like a lot of this has been circumstantial and it may not be the case against the Bengals who aren't quite as stout up front, 
But part of it too, I think maybe actually stylistic because this was actually the thing with the team going from Daryl Henderson to Michelle later in the season where Henderson was putting up great statistics, great analytical statistics like DVOA numbers. But I think both he and Akers are more home run style hitting runners. Whereas Michelle is like, a, I'm going to get my three or four yards here and you may not get 10, but like it's a higher floor, lower ceiling type of running. And honestly, that might be a, a better way to move the chains against a team that you're worse than because it kind of, it takes that disaster scenario a little bit more out of the picture. I also would not be surprised if they tried to really hone back in on a lot of their under center stuff, because I think if you can, if they can do some of their like motion stuff off of under center or get like a bunch of split zone and stuff, I think that's how you have to run against the Bengals. I think their interior players are too good to just, you know, line up and run at them. I think you have to get their linebackers kind of out of position and playing the run. I think they both have pretty bad eyes. You know, Logan Wilson is really good in, in pass coverage, but I think in terms of, you know, the way they deal with eye candy in the run game is a little questionable to me. So I think that that's probably the best way to take advantage of that. And then of course you can, you know, play action behind that sort of stuff. So I would, be, I'm really interested to see how much Sean McVay leans back into that for as long what as you're saying time. is if, if you could combine Troy reader and Logan Wilson, you'd have a hell of a play. You you'd have like a top 10 <laughs> linebacker. You'd be pretty good. Uh, Joey sucks asks if is Rob still of this earth or has his immense bliss ascended him to a higher plane of being. Uh, Robert Weintraub, our resident Bengals fan, will join us next Thursday for the Super Bowl preview show. So he will get to hear me besmirch the Bengals for an hour and he'll be able to defend them. And they're, again, I mean, you know, it's, it's first of all, they're a great story. Um, it is nice to see teams, new teams make it, right? The Bengals have never won a title. Their fans have never won a championship in football. And I think their last championship in any sport is the Reds in like 1990 and LA, the Rams haven't won since 1999 and the Rams have never won when they're in LA. Although obviously LA has plenty of titles in other sports over the last couple of years. Um, but it's nice to see new teams make it. And the Bengals are a great story. And it's good that the best team doesn't always win. Like we wouldn't want the top two teams in DVOA in the Super Bowl every year. Like part of the fun is that lower teams go on runs and make it. Um, but I just don't think they're the equal of the Rams. And I think the Rams are clear. I think it's good. But like for Bengals fans, it's all still really encouraging because even independent of this game, if you were measuring up which franchises you would want to be over the next five to 10 years, like how high are they on the list right now? That. They've got the quarterback. They've got all these resources. They don't really have a lot of bad contracts. Everything is looking up whether or not they pull this game out or not. Yeah, the Bengals are going to be like the Tennessee Titans of 1999 who made it to the Super Bowl a little early on their, on their, in their um, development and then were better the next year but didn't make it back to the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. like that's what I think is going to happen to the Bengals is they're actually going to be a better team next year but the odds of them getting back to the Super Bowl are long, especially when it looks like all the good young quarterbacks are in the AFC for the most part. And that includes the ones who we haven't seen their development yet, right? Like if you look at last year's drafted quarterbacks, I guess Lance and Fields are in the NFC, but Mac Jones and Lawrence, who, I mean, we all, I think, still expect that when they get real coaching, Trevor Lawrence is going to, we keep talking about, oh, the great young quarterbacks of the AFC, the great young quarterbacks of the AFC, and not mentioning Trevor Lawrence. Like, Trevor Lawrence is going to show that he's one of them next year. I don't know. They all seem really packed into the AFC. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about the other big story of the week. Uh, remember, you can ask questions if you're watching right now on YouTube or on Twitch. We'll take your questions. It is sort of our Ask Me Anything rather than a, I think it says weekend preview on the top, but obviously there's there's the only game to preview this weekend is the Pro Bowl, which none of us care about. <laughs> but um, I want to ask you guys your feelings about the uh, Brian Flores lawsuit, which I think, you know, when it first came out over the internet, it was just sort of like your jaw dropped at what was being alleged. Now it's been a couple of days and we've had some more time to think about it and what what could possibly happen here from the allegations that he's made. So the the interesting part to me, I'll start with the, you know, the allegations that Stephen Ross was offering him. It was like one hundred thousand dollars for every game that he lost in like the 2019 season when they were 
Um, you know, clearly trying to tank. And the way they built the roster was clear that they were trying to tank. I think what's interesting to me is that you've, if you just, like, stripped all of the names and, and didn't know who all these people were, it's not that crazy that an owner would, like, actively just want to tank and be like, we're not good enough. You know, we've seen this in basketball. Like, let's just try to get a high pick. Let's try to get a quarterback, all that sort of stuff. The problem that complicates it to me is that it's also not that surprising that an owner would do this to a black coach. I think that's kind of the tricky part to me. And it's like somewhat similar to what we saw with the Texans and David Coley, where it was like pretty clear from the jump that this was not going to be a long-term thing for them, even though Coley ended up overperforming what that team should have done. That was a horrible roster. And they they won more games than they should have. They looked more competent down the stretch. It, It was clear that they were getting better too. Like the defense was horrible early in the year and got better so like it, to me it was just i think the complicating factor is that i do not really know if an owner would be willing to do this or willing to hire a you know a white coach and do the same thing and offer this this package or whatever yeah i mean honestly this has been like kind of an upsetting revelation with that too because it's like you think like in my mind an owner would treat you know getting a new head coach in there like trying to get a new franchise quarterback you're trying to identify a coach that you think can become a long-term asset to your team right mm-hmm. and that's why i was like oh yeah like getting guys like flores and cully it's maybe a little non-traditional because like they weren't even official coordinators at the time you could probably argue whether flores was like the the real defensive coordinator for the patriots but they were both like a little non-traditionally qualified for the job i was like oh they're getting a little bit creative and who they're trying to get to come in and be their coaches which i think is great because I think we've really kind of learned over the years that being a good offensive or defensive coordinator isn't necessarily a great tell about whether you're going to be a good coach in the future. So they get these coaches in, they both overachieve and it seems like it's going well, but if behind the scenes, they maybe were treating it more like, Hey, let's, instead of getting some of the top candidates that we maybe would have to pay more, let's save a few bucks, lose in the short term and then fire them. And then like, hands washed of the situation and like then we can get the coach that we want to get. And then maybe nobody's killing us about like having non-diverse coaching hires year after year after year. Like it's, it's like honestly kind of awful and conspiratorial in that sense too. Right. If that's what's really been going on. It's, it's interesting because I think that the story that has become the biggest story out of the lawsuit is the Stephen Ross, the idea that Stephen Ross might have offered to pay Flores to lose games. And that one, I mean, yes, it's connected to the racial stuff because, like you said, boy, it seems like uh, tanking teams do seem to have black head coaches an awful lot. But um, in a way, that story is very separate from Mm -hmm. the racial angle of why do we not have more black head coaches. The other thing I think is sort of interesting is I don't know how we got to this position where we have a lot of, I mean, not a lot of, but a, a reasonable number of black general managers but we don't have black head coaches. Like, how did we, how did we get to that position? Like it's, it's something that I find like um, the Vikings that their last three candidates were O'Connell, the white offensive coordinator from the Rams, Patrick Graham, who's a black defensive coordinator from the giants. And um, I think it's D'Amico Ryans was the other one. Like, no, not D'Amico Ryans. It was another defensive coordinator though another black defensive coordinator, I can't, I'm blanking on who it was, who was their third finalist candidate, but it looks like they're going with O'Connell and you're like, oh God, here we go, another white guy, except they just hired this very promising, very smart young black general manager. So it's really hard to accuse Adolfo Mensa of racism. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in the hiring of head coaches, but and. You know, this is the problem with the black head coach thing is that every team, there is a reasonable explanation for why they hire the white guy. The problem is it as a whole group, like with Jacksonville, apparently, there seems to be some kind of problem where the cons really want to keep Trent Baalke there. And Byron Leftwich basically demanded that if he was the head coach, that he bring his own general manager and Adrian Wilson. And they balked at getting rid of Bulky. Um, and that's why we don't have a black head coach in Jacksonville now. Like, like each, there's an explanation for each team, but it's the, the group aspect that doesn't add up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky spot because with the comparison with the GMs to the head coach thing, I wonder if there's like a little bit of like racist inertia kind of that from the coach's perspective because of what 
owners have been looking for for their head coaching candidates. It's like, think about the ways that you might have a leg up in becoming, developing into like a 40 year old man who has, you know, a, a good chance to become a head coach, right? If your parents like were in coaching, that's probably a pretty good comparison. Like Kyle Shanahan being like a classic example, right? Well, 40 years ago, how many black head coaches were there then, right? Like fewer than there are even now, right? So that's an advantage that some of the best black co coaching candidates probably don't have. If maybe being a quarterback, that would be a position for a player that might have more exposure to more elements of things that are happening in a football game, right? 40 years ago, how many black players were, were quarterbacks? And the answer is not very many, right? So it's like, this is like a, it, 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 it might be that owners are more open for GMs because I think we've, the skills that they're looking for, or they think they're looking for in a GM, they're more open to the idea that maybe different backgrounds could make sense for that role. And I think owners may need to, to kind of broaden their perspectives on what the skills are that make it for a good head coach. Because again, as mentioned, like being a good offensive and defensive coordinator, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good head coach. But if the fact is that owners aren't even bringing in black candidates, unless they're forced by the Rooney rule, that kind of already tells you that they're that they're looking at skills that, that may not be the right ones to decide who is going to be the best head coach in that sense. Mm -hmm. Todd Singer says Las Vegas would be very interested in hearing that Ross offered money to his coach to lose. Uh, Las Vegas, I think not as in the Raiders, but as in like, you know, Las Vegas. Oh, right. <laughs> I was about to say, like, I'm trying to get the, the Josh Dan McDaniel compare connection. Like in my it's head complicated it. because yeah. uh, Ross owns, uh, he's an investor in the, um, He's an investor in the Action Network. Right. That so, is also kind of the trickiest part to me is that when you are actively trying to lose while also being in bed with gambling companies, it's like, okay, this this can get very illegal very fast. Right. And as for Stephen's comment that we are three middle-aged white guys discussing why there's only one black yeah. coach, I'll have you know we are only two middle-aged white guys. Right. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I look older than I am too. Come on, let's not stop the middle-aged around just loosely. We are one middle-aged white guy and two <laughs> younger white guys, one who is younger than the other one, discussing why there's only one black <laughs> coach, despite the fact that there being lots of good candidates. Although, again, you know, you're stuck with the fact that you don't know, you know, so much of being a head coach is this sort of overall CEO job rather than being a schemer on one side of the ball. As much as teams right now want to hire offensive geniuses and try to get that McVeigh and apparently now Zach Taylor magic, um, there's so much that goes into being a head coach that doesn't involve that. That's why the Jim Caldwell is sort of interesting because Jim Caldwell has proven that he can do that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. He's not, he's not some young coordinator. He's like a guy who's been a head coach, went to a Super Bowl, has managed teams, has managed the egos in the locker room, has done all of that stuff. And yet is not getting another job. And it's like, that. it's why Tomlin is as good as he is. He's not, I mean, he like, he has taken over the defense at certain points and like, he is a defensive guy. Right. But, but he is weird. much more of an overall exactly. CEO. Exactly it's very clear that they are good because he kind of has his fingers on everything and is very, very good at managing all of that stuff. Yeah. Todd Singer says, I was hoping for Dave Taub to get a chance at a head coaching job, mm -hmm. but the buzz around him seems to have died down. Yeah. That's the chief special teams coach. And Hey, look, I mean, special teams. I love the idea of a special teams coach getting a head job because you work with both the offense and the defense. It definitely gives you more of that CEO position where you have to manage the whole team and you it's, work with guys that don't want to be there no nobody really wants to do special teams i mean some <laughs> guys understand that it can project them into you know getting a chance at like the starting lineup but like if they had a choice most guys would not want to be doing special teams so the fact if you are a great special teams coach and can get and convince everybody to do this at a super high level that probably means something that's, that's pretty hard and it's good that we brought up the chiefs i feel like too because because I get the logic that like in a perfect world, you might want to have an offensive oriented person end up becoming your head coach because there's the upside fear that like when you're McVeigh and, and Shanahan is every year you're going to lose some of your staff because other teams are going to hire them away as a head coach. And so you would think it would create better continuity going forward if, if your headband actually was the one that was kind of the, the tone setter from that perspective. But then when someone like Eric Bieniemy never gets a chance 
and like maybe there are reasons I've always wondered whether the chiefs having success into the postseason and maybe cut off his opportunities. But like even this year when they expanded the hiring rules where you can interview those guys before the end of the regular season and he's still not getting a chance. It's, it's kind of hard to make the case that it's been unlucky because of like a trend. Like it, it seems to be a much broader issue. Uh, useful was first pointed out that the special teams coach thing worked with the Ravens with John Harbaugh, but not so much with the Giants with Joe Judge. It, it's not foolproof. I would just like to see more teams kind of explore it because it's largely unexplored. Yeah. True Mac wants to know, do you think more franchises are going to go after collegiate duos from the same team? I feel like the Bengals have proven that it works. Or is this a fluke? You know, by the way, Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Waddell is another really good duo that played in college together and obviously had a strong rookie. Waddle had a strong rookie year for the Dolphins in a very different way than Chase. To me, I think it's just if both players are good, it'll work itself out. Like it probably helps a little bit, especially with easing in whoever is. It probably helps more in the first year. Right. Because they've got that experience together. It probably but helps whoever the younger. together for two or three years, mm -hmm. they'll catch exactly. up with the guys who played together in college, I would think. Exactly. Like, you know what? Maybe it did help Chase's inroads into the league a little bit and maybe helped his transition a little bit. But, like, ultimately, if Chase was this good, he was going to get there anyway, right? Like, I, I don't necessarily think having Burrow was, was – I mean, it helps. But, yeah, I don't think it's, like, why he's that good. But I, from the from the opposite perspective, I do think it almost makes more sense with Burrow than it would for a lot of other quarterbacks in the league because Burrow is such like a defense reading, timing related quarterback. Like he, he's seeing his successes by making those good decisions and good reads and being in sync with his receivers. Comparing that to somebody like a Kyler Murray, right, where it's like much more a playground style of football where he's running around doing stuff, making incredible plays physically, and it's just like I almost feel like more than any other quarterback in the league, Burrow would benefit from having incredible chemistry immediately with a player by having a history with him. I think that yeah. makes sense, especially if it's just many one-on-ones he throws up. <laughs> jump! I don't think you jump a guy on your board. Like yeah, if I'm I, the yeah. Patriots and, and a wide receiver comes to me at whatever pick they have, 22 or whatever it is, and they're like, oh, do we take uh, Alabama's second guy I don't, I don't know the name of their second guy, but, you know, not – not Mechie? Yeah. Or do we take Chris Olave, right? Like, I don't think the fact that Mechie has played with Mac Jones – I, I don't think they should really consider that. They should take the receiver who they think is best and fits their offense the best. Yep. Do, you, do you think the Bengals, like, if Burrow was advocating for Chase as opposed to drafting, like, a different position entirely, would you trust your quarterback's opinion? Like, hey, this guy is going to make it in the NFL – like that probably is a part of the decision making, right? I do think it depends a little bit on um, the position of the quarterback in terms of like, I do think you would with Burrow because you took him first overall and he was really good as a rookie, you know, whatever the numbers were, I don't remember, but he looked like he belonged as a rookie. So I think when you pretty clearly feel like you have the guy, you're probably more willing to to buy into whatever he wants to say. Whereas like, I don't know, at least for me personally, if Tua wanted something, I'd be like, no, we're going to figure out how we want to build this team. <laughs> it's like, we're going to pick a receiver that's going to fit with the quarterback we replace yeah. you with. And so, sorry. <laughs> Steven says the Bengals are projected to have $70 million in cap space after they cut Trey Waynes. What does the offensive line free agency market look like? Um, it looks like mostly dudes in their 30s. Because that's what free agency looks like. I, I just brought up the um, Sport Racks list of offensive line free agents. I mean, there are going to be some good guys available depending on whether guys get franchise tags. So Ryan Jensen, right? Uh, Ryan Jensen is is going to be available depending on whether he gets franchise tag. Teron Armstead, uh, Andrew Norwell, right? The guard from Jacksonville. Former Brandon Panther Scherf, yeah. Who I may get franchise tagged. Jason Kelsey, but he's old. Trent Brown is an interesting one because the Bengals could definitely use a right tackle, but they do have Riley Reef there usually, and Reef is okay. He just got injured. What the Bengals really need is interior offensive linemen. They need guards and centers. Absolutely guards agree. I would also say like Trent Brown doesn't really fit the ethos of like what the offense is. Um, it would kind of be like 
it's like Orlando Brown being on the Chiefs. Like, he was fine, but I think he pretty clearly was not as good as he was with the Ravens because it's just functionally the way that those offenses work. The Ravens are doing more things that make sense for a guy as big and strong as Brown. Whereas I think with the Bengals, like as, with as much empty as they're in, maybe Trent Brown is is not the greatest fit there. Um, oh, and then, Reef, like you said, they need interior guys. Reef is gone after this year. Okay. So most of the tackles that are at the top of the market are left tackles, but they could theoretically either move a guy to the right or move Jonah Williams to the right and see whether that works. Dwayne Brown, Teron Armstead, Cam Robinson, Nate Solder, who doesn't really have much left, Eric Fisher, and there's Riley Reef is actually on this list. So. So Derek, by virtue of playing kind of a different style of football than a lot of teams in the NFL, like they're not running play action and stuff. They're kind of like four wide or whatever, playing out of shotgun that in my mind probably makes life a lot harder on offensive linemen in general. But like, does that style of offense, which obviously suits Burrow's skill set so well. So I don't think the Bengals are going to be changing what they're doing, but does that style of offense lend itself to a certain type of offensive lineman? Like, kind of like what you were saying with maybe some of the like lighter guys, do they make more sense for that team? I think so. I mean, I think also just like they don't really care about running the ball. They don't really care about diversifying their run game. They don't really care about having a lot of these pulling plays and, you know, um, imposing their will, you know, if you want to say that, like, I just think they're not very interested in that. So you probably want guys who are a little bit lighter and are more pass protectors than run blockers. Um, which is why, like, honestly, like a guy like Eric Fisher probably doesn't really make sense. I think he's more of a run blocker than a pass protector, um, at least at this point in his career. So I, I think that's absolutely, you know, a fair assessment to make. Um, Lucas Hedgrid says, what is one specific thing that could turn the Super Bowl in the Bengals' favor? Finish this sentence. The Bengals have a good shot to win the Super Bowl if blank happens. If Burrow just doesn't get sacked. And, like, he has – games where he can kind of do that right like where he you know he's huge he's like 6'4 like 225 or something like he's a really big guy and he moves well for that size even if he's not um you know cam newton or whatever um and he has a great sense for when and how to move so he's just gonna have to have one of those games where he magically gets out of every sack which is not impossible he's had plenty of those games before you know, they just have to hope that it's not the Titans game where he gets sacked nine times because the Rams are too good to sack you nine times and lose the game. I I definitely did some research related to this and about like time to throw. And for Burrow, if he gets rid of the ball in under three seconds, or if he's holding the ball for only three seconds, including the like sacks and pressures and stuff that he's getting, he's not getting, you know, sacked and pressured any more than anybody else. He it's, it's really when he starts holding the ball for more than three seconds, that things get really egregious with that offensive line. Uh, and so like, I would say if, if it's vanilla on the, on the Rams defensive side, which makes it really easy for Burr to make quick reads, quick decisions and deliver the ball quickly. That's really a way that I feel like it, it kind of neutralizes to an extent, the mismatch you expect between the defensive line and his offensive line. So, I, I mean, I feel like if, if they can get more creative, I mean, that's the thing I feel like with the Titans and I know that the Titans lost, but from a defensive perspective, they do so much cool, creative stuff. It's, it's not just that their guys up front are just winning and getting to you. It's like they run stunts. They drop defensive linemen into coverage and bring not blitzes, but they're, they're bringing like individual blitzers from non-traditional places. And so like, if you don't know where things are coming from, that's when you're holding the ball and having a hard time making decisions. And so you feel like if the Rams get too vanilla defensively, maybe that makes life too easy on Burrow and he can beat pressure with quick decisions. Although I will point out, Burrow was the number three quarterback against the Blitz this year by ESPN's mm-hmm. QBR. So um, yeah, complicated it, stunts and twists might be better than blitzes. Well, it's not blitz. Like what the Titans would do, It's they weren't blitzing per se, but they were basically maybe bringing a cornerback and a rusher but then having a lineman drop into coverage. And that's that's how you don't end up bringing too many players in pass rush where, you know, Burrow can kill you with the one-on-ones, but uh, at least vary the looks is what I would say. I'm going with the commenters. I mean, I do think that the answer to that sentence is the Bengals have a good shot to win the Super Bowl if Stafford throws a couple of bad interceptions. Um, I will say I think Stafford's interception happiness is a little bit overstated. He had a few interceptions this year that were basically arm punts. They were like 45 yards downfield on third and 10 type interceptions. 
And also all of his worst ones just happen to be on prime time. Right. Like he played a lot of other really good and clean games where he was not doing that. And then he just had his worst moments. It felt like in that, you know, four week stretch or whatever, where they had like three primetime Island games. Um, and I think it's hard to forget that, you know, I don't blame people, you, you know, if you're not watching every game, it's very easy to remember, um, you know, when he throws a pick six in his own red zone. Well, the, the right. fact that they all came on his side of the field it like, yeah. maybe, maybe that's a randomness thing, but I think just an outsider looking in would be like, well, that's probably part of the field where he should be more conservative. And it's like, that's, that's the part of the field where the defenders are more spread out vertically. So like you would think that would be where you would have fewer interceptions and it being the opposite kind of makes you snap judge that like Stafford has something very wrong with his approach. But then, you know, in the playoffs with the interception that I'm thinking of on that pass to Cooper cup was right in the end zone. So it wasn't mm -hmm. on his side of the right. field at all. Um, Steven says, you're telling me he's due for another pick six. Well, that's sort of gambler's fallacy, I suppose. Right. Well, is he is he more due for that, or are the Bengals more due to just win a Super Bowl, right? Or, well, are the Bengals due for a down game after having, I mean, not counting week 18 when they sat their starters, the Bengals have won six in a row, but most of them they've won close, right? Are the Bengals due for, you know, to get outplayed a little bit? Competing yeah. dues. Yeah. Right. Right. See, that's the problem with the gambler's battle. <laughs> There's always another angle. Completely competing things. Um, I want to remind readers who are watching and listening, by the way, the 19th annual Football Outsiders Awards balloting is up. This is our 19th annual uh, getting your thoughts on who should win the MVP and Rookie of the Year and Coach of the Year and Executive of the Year, but also all those special Football Outsiders Awards like keep chopping wood and unit of the year and who's most likely to improve next year or decline next year. So I thought I'd ask these guys their thoughts about players they thought were particularly likely to improve or decline next year, uh, starting with improve or breakout, like breakout or improving players for next year. I mean, Derek, I think we should definitely start with quarterbacks while we have you available, right? Because Two of the guys that stand out to me from a metrics perspective are Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, both of which were among the position trailers in Yak Plus. And like to me, especially in Lawrence's case, it like it's a very easy dot to connect of, hey, like he's surrounded by not very good skill players. And if we can improve that, maybe improve scheme with the new head coach and stuff, those quarterbacks seem like they could take pretty market step forwards. How do you feel about that? I mean, 100%. Like if they get just a competent coach in Jacksonville, which they haven't hired one yet. So we don't know. <laughs> it's what I have to imagine yeah. that um, they're going to look a lot better there because I, I mean, coaching was really the big thing. Cause honestly, you look at, if you look at their receiving room coming in to the it year, it wasn't, yeah, it looked like you were like, okay, this isn't the best, but like this should work. You know, Marvin Jones um, should be a pretty decent X receiver or whatever. Uh, LaVisca Chenault is like not the best, but he clearly should have a role. And then you watch them play and it was like, is anybody teaching them like where their landmarks are on routes or how to get out of their breaks? It just seemed like nobody was doing anything. So they looked even worse than a group like. And their you know, best the receiver, they lost their best receiver for the year very early on in DJ Chark, right? Right, so. exactly. And like the Lions were kind of on the opposite spectrum. You look at their receiver room coming in, they looked horrible. But truth, truthfully, they probably outplayed what they were supposed to be a little bit, um, which makes me believe that the Lions have some degree of competent coaching there. So. I think if the if the Jags can get any degree of competent coaching, that Trevor is gonna you know look like the guy that we thought he was. And then um, the thing with Fields, I'm still really interested to see what they do offensively. I don't know if they hired an offensive coordinator or not. I don't remember, but um, I think to me it's more just about fixing the offensive line for him. Um, I think their receivers were fine. I think a lot of his issues were just because his timing could be a little up and down, they really needed to make sure that he was clean. And so I expect him to figure that out himself a little bit. So if they can get you know him to develop and then fix the offensive line a little bit, I think the, the yak thing will kind of sort itself out. Trexel is asking how to vote, by the way. If you go to Football Outsiders, there's, not a, there's gonna be a graphic up telling you to vote at some point. But right now, if you just go to the extra points section, there's an extra point pointing you to the balloting, so. That will get you a chance to vote, but also there'll be a graphic coming up and stuff on social media and all that uh, with how to vote because we're keeping the voting open uh, for a week and a half until the day before the Super Bowl. So, um, 
I mean, my my breakout choice was is is Trey Lance. I mean, if you talk about a player who's going to break out next year, I think everybody right. feels like Trey Lance as the starter of the San Francisco offense is going to have a huge year. But for improvement, I mean, uh, I don't know if Etienne qualifies as a breakout candidate. Sure. Would Trevor Etienne qualify play, as a breakout so. candidate or a comeback player of the year? <laughs> Why not well, both? He, he's, not, he's, not, he's not coming back because he'd never played in the NFL before, right? Yeah. True. Um, but I think Lawrence is as good a pick as any for somebody who's going to improve because he was not – I mean, he was really bad this year, but the talent is still so much there. It was like an impossible situation, really. Because, like, you know, people kind of pointed out, like, I, I don't know, like the Andrew Luck, when he stepped in, you know, that team wasn't very good and he still produced, but it was like that team was leaps and bounds better than oh, what yeah. Trevor had. Like it was not even close. Um, and, and like even just looking at the rookie situations this year, like I think what the Jets had was leaps and bounds better than what the Jaguars had. Like Corey Davis is a good NFL receiver. Elijah Moore, good NFL receiver. Davison Crowder is like fine. Their offensive line, I think, was better than the Jaguars. Yeah, their coaching was better. The Jets and their coaching was better. Exactly. With uh, Mike LaFleur as offensive coordinator. So like as someone who doesn't like study this, it, it seemed coming in that like if Lawrence was going to fail, it seemed like it was going to be like a schematic translation because like he was running a lot more like RPO and stuff in college than like Lawrence. I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Luck was running a much more traditional oh, NFL style yeah. offense back in college, right? So that it's was like, like a real offense. Yeah. There was still more projecting that was happening with Lawrence, even if his physical tools were just incredible. But I also got the sense that this season, like he was failing in like impressive ways, right? Like it's, he was doing like the full field reading, making ambitious throws, like clearly demonstrating the physical talent and stuff. And there were all these other problems around him, but like nothing that happened this year is like, like worried you that he can't process what he's seeing or like make all the throws, right? Like all of the pieces seem to be there, but they're just not combined yet in a way that that works. That's the thing. It's like, he showed a lot of moments where his processing was actually really good. It's just that the coaching and personnel was so bad that like there wasn't consistently things worth processing. You know what I mean? Like it was impossible to actually read things out correctly and make the right throw. Throws he's like it just, it just wasn't there it turns out all three progressions led to a bad outcome but he got yeah, exactly. to them all. Like, what, is, what do you want him to do <laughs> you're like hmm Tavon Austin that's my third choice is it, is, how's it looking not uh, good the insistence that Tavon Austin was a real NFL wide receiver uh in Jacksonville this year. They, oh. they were really high on like bringing in the returners as their number two and three receivers this year it didn't, didn't really work mm -hmm. out no because uh, oh. Urban Meyer always thinks he's going to find Percy Harvin again uh, I mean, I, so thinking about other players that maybe could break out or maybe improve next year, I got to shout out Javante Williams. I know we talk about him a mm -hmm. lot, but since he went to North yeah. Carolina, I love pointing out that he led his position in avoided tackle rate this last season. So you, you get the sense that if he got 250 total touches, he would be an absolute star in the league. He obviously and looked Gordon great in that one game when he did play. Yeah, Gordon so, would be a free agent for Denver. Hopefully they'll let him have the full reins, whether or not that – that is the total right strategy for a team from a competitive standpoint. That would be fun from a fantasy footballer's perspective. Uh, I'm happy to say that I have him in a keeper league. So go Javante Williams. <laughs> nice. Um, Derek, do you want to talk about Kyle Pitts at all? Like he, he pops from this perspective a lot from, I guess, from a fantasy angle because he only scored the one touchdown, but right. he was the biggest tight end underachiever in terms of touchdown scoring based on like where he saw his targets. I think he was top five at a position in end zone targets. It just didn't work out, but I also get the sense that that was more fluky than anything. And, and then you, you still really love his talent, right? A hundred percent. I mean, I don't even think like the pits thing. isn't really like he needs to be better. It's really more just like the offense needs to be better. They weren't getting to <laughs> yeah. the red zone enough because they just weren't good enough um, because he was pretty clearly their best guy, especially with Calvin Ridley, you know, dealing with some of the stuff that he was dealing with. So, yeah, I mean, I think Pitts has a talent. He's just, he's just insane, man. Like he's, I mean, he's what, like six, six. Um, you can legitimately play him at wide receiver. Like you can legitimately put him at X and he's probably better than all but a handful of guys at that position. Um, I think what continues to fascinate me the most about him is like, you know, he's big and athletic. He can get open, all that stuff. But the way that he can bend and contort his body and just find the ball, no matter where it is, whether it's down on his back knee, whether it's up in the air, whether it's on the sideline, he has an unbelievable body control. Literally one of the best I think I've ever seen for a pass catcher. And, and that alone, I think, is going to make him elite. 
I would not be shocked if he was the number one tight end in fantasy next year. Yeah. Like even, even with the Atlanta offense being kind of mad because he's so clearly their top, their top target. It wouldn't right. shock me. And I still, I think, you know, for as much as the, the Atlanta offense was not that productive this year, I think Arthur Smith actually did a fantastic job getting what they could out of that offense, you know, with not a great offensive line, some weird, you know, moves that running back, you know, I mean, making Cordero Patterson what he was is pretty fantastic. And then having to deal with like, I think it was like Olamide Zacchaeus was like basically their number two pass catcher for a lot of the year, which like making offense out of that good luck, but he did about as well as you could, I think. Um, Steven asks, does coaching really matter that much in contextualizing young quarterback success if Joe Burrow got Zach Taylor to a Super Bowl? I think the issue is that Urban Meyer was a minus. Like, yeah. Zach Taylor may not be a plus, but he's not really a minus. Like, Urban Meyer was a minus. Right. I think that's the ultimate thing, is that Urban Meyer was very clearly a detriment to the team. Whereas, like, Zach Taylor, yeah, you know, to your point, he might just be kind of getting out of the way and letting Joe Burrow be Burrow. Um, I mean, I also think even as a rookie, the Bengals pass catchers were like a lot better and cleaner than whatever, um, you know, Trevor had to deal with in Jacksonville. It's just, it's also a weird situation with the Bengals where the Burrow's like best attributes kind of lend itself to that, again, shotgun wide offense where it's, mm -hmm. You know, he's going to be the one that's processing and making the reads and making the decisions. And like he would make total sense in a Mike McCarthy offense. And it's like that makes it seem like coaching doesn't matter. But if you look at a different quarterback with different strengths and weaknesses, I think we, we were just talking about Arthur Smith. I think he's a great example where Ryan Tannehill was a bust fail, failed quarterback. But when you got him in a system that really highlighted his ability to stretch the field where he was relying on play action, like kind of moving away from the types of plays where he was really catastrophic and moving toward the plays where he actually has the right skill set made such a huge difference. And, you know, 25 to 30 coaches out there aren't going to have a quarterback that can do everything. And so they are going to have to try to put their quarterbacks in the best positions to succeed. So I think coaching is really important. And I think the fact that the Bengals run an offense that isn't as schemed up as like in with the Browns or, you know, with the, the Titans or whatever, that may just mean that's what, makes the most sense for Burrow and Taylor might be capable of so much more. Like in this case, I think less is more. I think he's doing the right thing. I think that's absolutely the case. Like, you know, I think everyone wants to be like this play action offense and stuff because that's what's become popular. That's who everybody's hiring. That's what Zach Taylor was supposed to be. But you look at Joe Burrow and it's like, that's why would you want him doing that? Why would you want to make him do the same stuff that Ryan Tannehill or whatever is doing? It just yeah. doesn't make sense with his skill set. Like to your point. So I think, in some ways, it's kind of good coaching that he's realized I'm just going to get out of the way and do all the things that Joe Burrow likes instead of whatever I think might be the best way to run an offense. Scott, you had a couple of other names on your for improvement list for next year that were interesting. Yeah, so I think Saquon Barkley is probably a good one to talk about. Um, and like, I, it's really hard to unpack what's been going on with him with related to the injuries and everything else because over the course of his career, like his avoided tackle rate numbers have gone down and down every year, set a, a new low with that last year. His yards after contact numbers have been going down. Those tend to be things that I attribute more to the individual running back more than the offensive line. But I think it's also unquestionable that the circumstances around him have gotten worse and worse as he's, he's moved along, along too. And when you see weird things like all three Browns running backs were like top five in yards after contact this year, I'm starting to like, I think grow a bit as an analyst and be like, huh, like maybe there are things that the offense around players are doing that like makes even things like that better or worse. And so I'm really curious what's going to happen with Barkley, hopefully getting better talent around him, hopefully being a further year away from the injury, maybe getting back more to his like physical freak type of situation that he was when he entered the league. So I'd love to hear what you guys think about whether Barkley is going to really bounce back and, you know, get back to being that top type of running back really important from a fantasy perspective, if not, again, running backs, maybe not mattering as much from a real world perspective. I just have a hard time seeing running backs bounce back. The running backs usually don't get bad and then good again. Usually once mm -hmm. they get bad, they're bad. Yeah. I think because to me, it's the injuries just, become nagging, you know? Exactly. I think for me, it's like, I don't think it's going to turn around in New York. I think if he's going to get back to a level where he is 
maybe not what he was, you know, supposed to be as the number two overall pick, but getting back to being a good to, to really good running back, I think it's going to have to be somewhere else. I think it's kind of one of those things where he's been here for too long. He's been getting beat up for too long. It's been putting him out of a lot of games, um, even through multiple coaching staffs. It clearly has not worked out from him here. I think he kind of just maybe needs a different set of scenery to get, you know, a fresh opportunity, fresh eyes, you know, on, on what a different coaching staff might think he can do, just all that sort of stuff. Uh, Joey Suck says the real problem with running backs these days is that they don't have cool nicknames. <laughs> Barkley would be better if we called him Jet or something. I don't know. There's there's like a a continuum where the cooler your real name is, the like less I want you to have a nickname. And to me, like Saquon is beyond that. Like Saquon is such a great, awesome name. It's almost like LeBron James, right? And I, I know that he's King James, but he's way more fun to just call LeBron, right? So it's like, to me, that there's that there's a little bit of a spectrum there. If LeBron mm. named his kid Bron, Saquon could just name his kid Quan. There you go. The natural yeah. progression. And Quan, I've definitely heard that. That's a good name. That would work. Um, not as good as Quez. Watkins, yeah. but you know. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap up this show. This was really good. Talking some Super Bowl, talking some coaching changes, uh, talking about players on the rise for next year. I want to thank everybody who's been watching the show. I want to thank everybody who's been listening to the show on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe and like the show to help other people find it. Uh, don't forget about the Splash Play guys today at 2.30, talking about best ball drafts for next year. Uh, don't forget to vote in the Football Outsiders Awards. Like There'll be graphics on the site showing you where to go to vote. We want to hear from you. And I will be back on Monday with another sort of let's catch up on the news, ask us anything show. And then Thursday will be the big Super Bowl preview show next, next week. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. And have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next Monday.